Hello and welcome to Wits and Tantrums, a podcast where we review trinkets of issues that possess wits, depth, and a capacity for tantrums on a five-star scale. I'm Uime Emmanuel, and today I'll be reviewing the Third Mainland Bridge and football goal celebrations. I think Wits and Tantrums is kind of straightforward. Or at least, that is the idea I want you to have. I get a topic and I review it, and we hold hands as we walk toward an end filled with a certain number of stars. Except, it's not entirely like that. To really capture your attention, I have to share my experiences as well, and be careful not to set the standard of thought for any topic I pick. The idea is to use these experiences to elicit emotions from you, For you to either agree and nod as you listen, or for you to disagree and frown, but still listen. For instance, I've had people tell me that my last review of Deja Vu stuck with them, and that they were pleased, but I've also had few people tell me that my review of Suya was unjust and that it deserved better. No, I do not think that Suya deserves better than 3 stars. The thing about my experiences is that they can be all at once tiring, complex, and expensive to have, and not just in terms of money. On that note, transportation fees are now high enough to probably feed your two-year-old cousins. But experiences are expensive in the way where you have to be particularly self-aware of your choice of transportation and location. To make sure you're not the next piece of temporary sympathy on the internet. And somehow, even when I physically manage to survive through all of these, my little social battery will quickly run out, probably before I get to what I've planned and to who I've planned with, or even more commonly, while I'm going through with the plans. I should also say this accounts for the themed inconsistency of this podcast, but that is not an apology and I am truly sorry. Wits and Tantrums is not a conventional podcast. I only want to be at the back of your mind, like a background home, a place for you to tread lightly when you need some enlightenment, like neon beaches in San Diego. I've come to understand that experiences must and will be had, with or without your consent. A friend said to me, experiences are inevitable. If you close yourself to one, you indirectly open yourself to another. That said, the past few weeks have been garnished with experiences leading me to do this review and more reviews to come. So here's that experience. I've had to cross over from the mainland to the island in Lagos quite a few times lately and one of the key parts of that journey is the third mainland bridge. The third mainland bridge is a huge trinket of an issue because even though it's an engineering monster, it often gets criticized a lot. So let's review the Todd Mayland Bridge in our way on our podcast. The Todd Mayland Bridge is the longest of the three bridges connecting the Lagos Island to the mainland. The others are the Eko and Carter Bridges. The bridge was commissioned in 1990 under Ibrahim Babangida, Nigeria's president at the time, and was known as the longest bridge in Africa, but that was pretty short-lived. The scheme to build Third Mainland Bridge was divided into two phases. 
Phase 1 saw the construction between Lagos Island and the road interchange at Ebutemeta between 1976 and 1980. Phase 2 continued the scheme north to the coast of Oronshoki. Work on this section lasted from 1988 to 1990. So here's some of that engineering magnificence I mentioned earlier. The third mainland bridge measures about 11.8 kilometers in length. You see, I've often found that the thing about big numbers like that is that our brain will do nothing to explain to us its magnitude because it is not in terms we can understand. For instance, I can tell you the population of the world as at the time I'm writing this podcast is 7.753 billion, but you don't understand how truly big that is until you are in a gathering of 7,000 people and you try to multiply that by 1 million, which is still a number we struggle to comprehend. Anyway, before I leave you stranded and confused, the third mainland bridge is pretty straightforward, I think. One BRT bus, for instance, is about 18 meters, and you would need 6,555 of them stacked together to cover the third mainland bridge. That did not help at all, did it? It's fine. The third mainland bridge carries eight lanes of traffic, four in each direction. There's a median separator, a structure to mark the division between the two sets of lanes running down the center. Engineers use slender concrete pillars for each of the bridge's piers. The difference between each pier ranges from about 45 to 60 meters. And the overall width of the Todd Milan Bridge is 33.1 meters, including the 3.5 meters for the median separator. The scheme used reinforced concrete to construct the main bridge as well as its deck. If you are not impressed yet, then let me appeal to your emotions. Three things stand out to me when I use the Todd Milan Bridge. You see, the Todd Milan Bridge was constructed over the Lagos Lagoon. So every time I pass, the first thing I notice is the hundreds of scattered underdeveloped houses that rest a bit distanced from the bottom of the bridge. What strikes me as odd about this is the fact that much of Lagos is being reformed at this moment. This month alone, nine buildings on my street have been demolished and three houses have been constructed, while active plans are being made for a train station. And yet, this place feels to me severely overlooked. The second thing I notice is that both on high seas and nothing like they tell you in physics class in high school. I could stand here and recite to you the Archimedes and flotation principles on account of how burned into my brain they have been ever since I crammed them for my WIAC examination. And no, it did not come out in the exam. But reciting them would do no justice to what seeing a water vessel on the lagoon can do to you. There are few vessels you would see alongside the canoes owned by the people who live in those houses. But one particular vessel that catches my eye every single time is the Delta Conquest 8. The Delta Conquest 8 is a drilling jackup that was built in 2017. Drilling jackups are multi-purpose vessels that are used when it comes to drilling oil from its oceanic reservoir. Although I can't say for sure if that's the case here. 
One notable thing about them is that they have legs that are deployed to the bottom of the ocean, usually less than 400 meters deep, which can make them extend vertically. But we're not here to review three-star drilling Jacobs and the five-star beauty of the Delta Conquest 8. I guess by now you can tell I've not been on a boat or had any aquatic experience really, but I look forward to having one. Hopefully soon and soon enough that I can review the experience on this podcast. Here's the final one. For a few minutes during the journey, if you look out to the distance, to your right if you're going to the island and to your left if you're coming to the mainland, you can see a perfect blur of the lagoon into the sky and the sky into the lagoon. They melt into each other with a soothing blue leaving the city behind in his silhouette. In his book, Uncle Dysfunctional, which he called an uncompromising answer to life's most painful problems, Adrian Gill wrote, So much of life is not about whether you are good or bad, or right or wrong, or can afford or not afford. It's just about timing. The thing about words like this is that It is one of the things you know, but you have to relearn or be reminded of. I'm reminded of it when I stare out into the Lagos Lagoon and its effort to pair with the sea anywhere after 5am to 7am and 5pm to 7pm. It's beautiful, no doubt, but the timing feels to me off. After 7am, the sun is up and the reflections and movement of the lagoon make an obvious line. And after 7pm, the city is not in a silhouette. The lights have come on and they tint the pitch black sky. Let's come back to Lagos for a second. Because anything that can be used, can be abused. Is what I say when I see the buses pass the lane of a one-way in the opposite direction. And then, it's a Friday. You spend hours trying to get a bus with your friend so you can both make it home. The traffic on the bridge is beyond human comprehension. It's rained, so that's understandable, you think to yourself. But not enough to justify the number of hours you are about to sit idle and cold with people you are just seeing for the first and probably the last time. And then, in a turn of events, your driver passes a one-way. He's quick. He doesn't get caught. And your sense of justice has melted with the traffic. And you're happy he's doing this. Excited, even. You get home on time, and you and your friends agree that the end does in fact justify the means. I give the Lagos Todd Mainland Bridge four stars. Let's move to goal celebrations. Before I begin this particular review, I guess I should mention to you and remind myself that I am indifferent to football. The writer John Green said, Contemporary humanity has invested a tremendous portion of its limited resources into developing extremely sophisticated strategies for placing a usually round object through a hoop or into a hole or past a line. And then billions of people offer gobs of their attention to watching and discussing and arguing over the exploits of these balls and the people who get paid 
astonishing sums of money to move these balls around. And how can anyone allow the absolute meaninglessness of sports to occupy so much of what Mary Oliver called your one wild and precious life? What if we turned our attention to researching malaria or planting gardens or developing strategies to limit climate change? Even without actively immersing myself in it, I cannot deny the influence of sports, or in this case, of football, on the world, both positive and negative. The major positive of football, I would say, is the sense of belonging and community. Football is very good at creating communities much to the delight of and to the detriment of the members of that community. I've seen strangers gather together all for the sake of an 11-man squad, in peace and with a sense of camaraderie in joy, on account of a victory, and in sadness on account of a loss. But I've also seen friends come at each other, and not just with words, but physically on the same accounts. I remember coming home on a Saturday night, the 1st of June in 2019 to be precise. I was with my brother, and just like some of you right now, I was oblivious to what that day meant, although my brother was very much aware. So aware, in fact, that when people started getting chased and I wanted to ask him about it, he had a pretty good head start from me. You learn not to do anything except run when you see other people running. It became evident almost immediately that we were not running casually, but for our lives, a few people were out cursing and taking out their anger on others because Sadio Mane had scored a goal in the 55th minute of the UEFA Champions League final against Real Madrid and they did not seem too happy about that. When I see or hear football, I'm often taken back to that sentiment. And yes, that would mean I might tend to speak a little less enthusiastically about football, unlike a football fan. But perhaps that detachment may help avoid the possibility of bias. Football fans love to talk about their history, the past legends of their clubs and the ancient glories and tribulations they've had. I'm continually astonished by what we can romanticize. Even when talking about the bad old days, football fans can sound nostalgic. You wouldn't believe how crap we were, Manchester City fans would say, almost wistfully. But for a game so concerned with its history, football tends to ignore some parts of it, and one of those parts would be the goal celebrations. Goal celebrations are self-explanatory. When a team scores a goal, the goal scorer and his teammates will take a few minutes to celebrate the goal. Some really common goal celebrations include the player running into a knee slide, raising arms in the air to give thanks to God, doing some kind of dance like Roger Miller and Peter Crouch, hugging other players on the team, kicking or hitting the corner flag, kissing the club or country emblem on their shirt, or blowing kisses to the crowd. When it comes to goal celebrations, I actually do have a few favorites. One of them is the Thierry Henry, or Henryin, as it was made famous by the striker Thierry Henry who would celebrate by simply propping himself against the goalpost while another hand was on his hip, hinting that he's tired or was tired of scoring goals. 
and always had a been there, done that kind of reaction. Another favorite is the acrobatic exercise done by Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, where he runs into a front flip or like Nani, who would do a round off into a full twist, among other things. But for some players, their celebrations have a personal meaning attached to them. For instance, Lionel Messi will often point two fingers to the sky and look up almost every time he scores a goal. In explaining, Messi said, I am doing this because I dedicate my goals to my grandmother. She took me to football, but now she can't see how far I have come. Nevertheless, she continues to help me and my family. Another example is the Uruguayan striker Luis Suarez, who will often kiss his wrist and three fingers as a dedication to his wife and three children. And finally, I think currently the most common one, I apologize in advance if I mess this up, is the signature Sue by Ronaldo, in which he runs, jumps, and then turns with his arms outstretched before shouting the word Sue. Oh God, as he lands. The Portuguese striker would later explain in an interview that it's derived from C, the Spanish for yes. He said, I started to say C. It's like yes when I was in Real Madrid. I just scored the goal and it came out. It was just natural to be honest. Since that, I started to do it more often and I feel like supporters and the fans see it and they're like, Cristiano, Sue. Last one, I promise. I'm like, wow, people are reminded of me because of it. So it's good. And I'll continue doing it like that. There's a team called Stajnan in Iceland, famous for its footballers' creative celebrations after scoring a goal. Like the fighter, where a player runs around fake punching and shooting through his squad. Or the toilet, where the players assemble to form a toilet and the goal scorer humbly walks over to use it for a number two. The Icelandic team Stajnan has some of the best and most entertaining goal celebrations. So much so that their coach made them retire for five years to quote, focus on football, not goal celebrations. What was the first thing they did when they came back? They released a goal celebration called the plank, which is an imitation of how pirates make traitors walk the plank. The thing about goal celebrations is that it's probably one of the things in football that does not only focus on the players. Coaches have also celebrated goals as enthusiastically as players. Jose Mourinho knelt down vigorously shaking his arms in response to the goal Real Madrid scored in 90 minutes of the game against Manchester City. Luis Enrique, while coaching Barcelona, experienced what I can only call a dose of frenzy where he ran around in celebration, hugging everyone and everything in his path. But it doesn't end with coaches. You could not be involved with the sport or be the players and still celebrate them. Football fans like to personalize the actions of their team. We bought three players this year, they'll say. Or something along the lines of, the opposing team injured our player and that's unfair. They always seem to know what is better for the team too. We shouldn't have done this or we shouldn't have done that. I understand it, I think. They want to be part of the experience as much as they can. 
But that level of personalization can only come from investing in the team one way or another. But for football goal celebrations, you could actively participate in them without personalizing anything. Although I don't advocate that you slide across the floors in your house. You can scream and shout at the top of your lungs because you genuinely care for your team and you will not be faulted for it. As with everything else in the sport, there are a few problems associated with football goal celebrations. For one, neither team could score a goal for the entire 90 minutes played, leaving you to watch the dance from one goalpost to another in anxiety and more often than not, vitriol. There's nothing more dissatisfying to a football fan than to see a draw with the opposing team on the basis of no goals scored. And then, as it would turn out, there are rules against setting goal celebrations. The International Football Association, IFAB, in releasing what they call the law of the game, stated that while it is permissible for a player to demonstrate his joy when a goal has been scored, the celebration must not be excessive. Common practices like taking off your shirt or pulling down your shorts or putting a ball under your shirt can lead to a fine. Some players open their shirts to reveal a message and still get fined for it. For instance, Thierry Henry was fined by UEFA after he removed his Arsenal shirt to reveal a t-shirt underneath which read for the newborn kid, spelt K-Y-D, which was directed to his friend, Texas lead singer Charlene Spiteri, who had just given birth. I know what you're thinking. This don't seem harmful. But goal celebrations are not without extreme cases. Jorgos Katsidis was fined 50,000 euros and banned for life from representing Greece after he celebrated scoring a goal with a Nazi salute. Paolo Di Canio was suspended and fined after celebrating a goal with a fascist salute while playing for SS Lazio. An Indian footballer, Peter Biaksangzwala, died from a spine injury in 2014 following a failed somersault celebration. So I guess in a roundabout way, putting a limit to how much you can celebrate might just be good for the players. Because I don't assume that the Frankfurt Football Club were happy when Nikolai Muller injured himself while celebrating a goal, spinning in his trademark helicopter style and then rupturing the ligaments in his knee joint. He was out of action for 10 months, and this would lead to his team being relegated, which would lead to him leaving. One thing I've come to understand about sports is that, as a player, you don't really have much of a choice. Which, I'm not saying is a bad thing. You assign a role and a uniform, and you have to wear that uniform proudly, and play your role, and play it well. Else, everything else is for nothing. I want to explain certain rules as an addition to this paragraph, but on account of how many football fans will come for me if I fail to do it properly, let's just assume you know what I mean. Okay, great. But with goal celebrations, you do have a choice. You can choose to celebrate or not, even though not everyone gets the choice often. Players choose not to celebrate goals or have muted celebrations on two occasions. The first is scoring a goal against a former club. The Egyptian footballer Mohamed Salah has never celebrated after scoring against former clubs Roma and Fiorentina. He has only celebrated a goal against a former club on one occasion, 
that's Chelsea, after a 30-yard strike for Liverpool in the 2018-2019 season. I mean, it's a 30-yard strike. Who wouldn't celebrate that? The second location is when a goal is scored in an otherwise lost match. There are still other reasons. For example, in the 2014 World Cup semi-final, it was noted by several commentators during the match that the German players toned down their celebrations as the goals piled up against host nation Brazil. Matt Hummels confirmed that this was deliberate on the part of the German players out of a desire not to humiliate the Brazilians unnecessarily. This seems to me like one of the humane parts of football. Football celebrations are a moment for players to express their feelings about the game, whether it is the team that scored or the team that conceded. Players from the conceding team will even on occasion congratulate the scoring team. It reminds me that after watching them robotically and meticulously chase after a ball, they are at the end of the day human. Plus, I mean, it's also really entertaining. So, I'm inclined to give football goal celebrations five stars. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of Witten Tantrums, even though it's been a while. If you'd like to help this podcast, please consider writing a review of it on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iTunes, or wherever you rate and review podcasts. As always, if you'd like to suggest a topic for review or just say hi, feel free to email me at witantantrums at gmail.com. I guess that's pretty hard to spell, but still, you could try. I'll leave you today with the sound of an engineer describing the ideas behind the third mainland bridge. Now we're talking about the third mainline bridge in Lagos, Nigeria, uh, or the Ibrahim Babangida uh, bridge. It's something which uh, had a huge part of, played a huge part of my life uh, and millions of Nigerians and Lagos residents. As a child, I grew up um, in Lagos, the then capital of Nigeria. When I was born in the mid-1970s, Lagos was a thriving and booming city uh, with rapid population growth and economic growth. And what that growth did was actually generate a substantial increase in traffic. Um, and that traffic became uh, such a problem, uh, and there was so much of it, that the then government of the day actually issued an edict um, that only odd or even numbered uh, cars or car registration number plates uh, could be used on certain days as a way of temporarily trying to manage uh, the traffic uh, problems within the city. However, that was only a, a short-term solution. A longer-term solution was required. Uh, and that actually kicked off in the month and the year that I was born, August in 1975, um, with the construction of uh, what became known as the Third Mainland Bridge.